Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We're speaking today to Martin Turan, who's the president and CEO of FPX Nickel Corp. They're a Canadian junior nickel explorer with assets in Canada. Their project is an Awara White nickel product. So that's new to us. We get into the technicalities of how you go about mining that and if indeed the, in, the market is interested. Um, they've done tests recently with Sherrit, which gives them confidence that the market does want what they have. So we also look at their finances at the moment, how they're burning through cash and what they're going to be able to do this year in what is quite a tight market. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Martin. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Nice to see you, Matt. You, you, uh, you at home? Yeah, uh, like everyone else. Uh, Good boy. Uh, trying to <laughs> and uh, spending a bit more time with the kids, which is sort of a silver lining, I guess, in all of that. Oh, totally, totally, totally. That's no, it's fantastic. I think a lot of people are quite enjoying it, actually, working from it. It could be the new way of working when we get out of this uh, coronavirus phase. <laughs> you don't look convinced, Martin. Okay, in which case, in case your wife watches this, let's we better get back back into business. So, why don't you kick off? Give us a one-minute summary of FPX Nickel, and we'll pick it up from there. We're a Vancouver-based company. We're focused exclusively on the development of a PEA stage uh, nickel deposit called Descartes, located in central British Columbia here in Canada. Uh, we think that Descartes is really a tier one asset. Now, that's a term that gets thrown around quite a lot in the industry. I'd use sort of three main criteria to define that. The first is scale. This could be one of the 10 largest nickel mines in the world uh, by annual output with a, about a 35-year mine life. Secondly, jurisdictionally, we think BC is, is certainly a, a tier one jurisdiction for, for people to build uh, assets of this scale. Most importantly, though, this is, an, this is a project that can deliver nickel uh, within the bottom quartile, the lowest quartile of the cost curve. So uh, in terms of scale, cost, jurisdictional advantage, we think ultimately this is something that's going to sit in the hands of a major company. Okay, cool. Thanks, thanks for that summary. Um, let's kick off with you, if you don't mind. Um, how long have you been in the nickel space? Give us a bit of your track record, successes, etc. Sure. So I'm a chartered accountant by background. I've been with uh, FPX since 2012, first the CFO, and have been the CEO for just over four years now, uh, and have seen you know good times and bad times certainly in, in, in the nickel market over, over that span of time. We had a partnership with a major company, uh, Cliffs Natural Resources, on this project for several years. Uh, Cliffs had a bankruptcy risk a few years ago and we were able to buy the asset back and we now hold 100% of it. Right, okay. And before that, any nickel experience or have you been learning it all on this? Really been learning it for the last, uh, you know, seven and a half years now. Uh, so I've been deeply steeped in it for that period of time. Before that, worked in uh, with several companies in the junior space here in Vancouver. And before that was actually in the, in the chemicals business. So I've been in the commodities business generally for, for almost 20 years. Okay, so I mean, I've been been asking around. I think people do think you're a good guy, and you've been managing the money quite well uh, in in the in the current current climbs. But um, I want to know where the nickel experience is in the team, and who else is on the team that has sort of been around this space and is going to advise you on the, technically, or how do you get advised technically? Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of nickel market dynamics, we are steeped in, in, in research uh, from all the major research 
providers and consultancies. And I think we've got a very sort of well-developed understanding of, of nickel market fundamentals from that. Um, we've also, you know, been working closely with a few um, uh, independent nickel traders and traders working for some of the larger uh, nickel trading companies advising us of the last uh, couple of years, as well as to their view of, of the nickel market and the various demand streams, particularly in terms of, you know, one of the areas we're focused on is nickel uh, in a ferro-nickel form for, for stainless. That's a bit of a niche market. So uh, we've had some of those advisors really assisting us in understanding that market and the, the dynamics of what stainless producers look for in their products from a specification standpoint. Okay, well, well let's, let's talk about that. What, how do you um, position yourself? How are you talking to people in the market based on what your understanding of what the nickel space looks like today and where you think you're going to be able to enter it you know, at some point down the line? So give, give us that macro view. Sure. So I think the high level thematic on nickel is that it's a market that since the beginning of 2016 has been in a period of, of long-term structural deficit. Um, that's been driven by continued robust stainless steel demand growth and fairly constrained supply growth. So the market has been short now for a few years and has been uh, uh, eating into the inventory buildup that had preceded that period. Uh, so, you know, the, at some point, the world needs to start building building new nickel mines, and the question arises: Well, who has the deposits that can, within the next five to ten years, help to square that nickel market deficit? And that's where we think we fall in. We have a project where the expiration risk has been largely eliminated. It's a very well defined, high confidence ore body, mm. and for us, it's about uh, engineering and economic feasibility demonstration over the next few years to have this project be construction ready to help meet that 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 gap in the market um, that we see from a, a supply standpoint. So, I mean, you're a relatively small company, you know, 26 million bucks market cap today as, as it stands. Um, you've been at this since 2012. You are you are known for looking after the pennies, uh, as we would say here, um, you, but it's a very difficult operating environment, right? So. Do you think that you've done this the right way? I mean, looking back, have you managed this the best you can in the environment and the conditions uh, that this environment is throwing at you? Or would you have done things differently uh, to get to where you are today? Yeah, maybe I'll just speak to the history of the project. So this is a discovery our team made in 2008. So what you'll find, I think, with a lot of the nickel projects out in the market is many of them have, frankly, have been around since the 1950s and 60s, and they keep reappearing in every bull cycle for nickel but they don't, they don't get built. Um, in 2009, we partnered with Cliffs Natural Resources out of the United States and our NOR company that was looking to diversify and, and get involved in nickel. And they took this from a pre-drilling stage right through to the completion of a PEA in 2013. And so we were able to ride along free for that under the terms of an option. They then, as I alluded to earlier, they almost went bankrupt a few years ago. And so we were able to buy the asset back from them for about 20 cents on the dollar versus what they had spent to advance it. So we're sitting on an asset that has had about $25 million US expended on it to date, of which our shareholders have only had to bear, you know, around two and a half million dollars of that cost uh, in terms of our, our, our expenditures, plus the amount that we paid to Cliffs, which was about four and a half million. So our, 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 our shareholders own 100% of an asset, which they've only had to pay a fraction of the development costs to date. Um, our view has been in recent years that 
Um, there hasn't been much reward for good news in the junior mining space. And as such, we've moved forward at a very measured pace. Um, fundamentally, uh, almost every asset in, in the marketplace is a call option um, on the underlying commodity. And in that, in that regard, I think the wisest thing to do um, during down periods is to conserve the treasury, to keep the capital structure intact so that uh, when we do get an uplift, when we do get when we do see mid-tier and major companies acquiring earlier stage assets again, that you're in, in a position where you've preserved your share account such that you can see that uplift in the share price, which is obviously the most important metric for anyone looking at, at, at these companies. Okay. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Um, so let's, let's talk, if we may, um, about the, the project itself. You know, I think it's well known for being low grade, but you've got a workaround for that. Um, and this isn't sort of conventional nickel either. So maybe you want to tell us about Awareite, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Awareite um, versus sort of conventional nickel projects that most people might know about. So what is Awareite, first of all? Yeah, so as you, as you know, Matt, nickel deposits in the world are typically either sulfide or laterite deposits. This is neither. The mineral is called Awareite. Now, Awareite is a mineral that is a combination of nickel and iron. It's an alloy of nickel and iron. So what we're dealing with is a, is a, is a ferro-nickel style deposit where um, the nickel can be recovered using very simple metallurgy. Mm-hmm. So certainly the head grade of our deposit um, is lower than what you'd find in either typically a sulfide or laterite um, uh, context. In the, you know, as comparison to laterite, it's literally an order of magnitude lower grade. And so the question then begs, how can something that's an order of magnitude lower grade than a laterite, for example, be economic? Well, as we know, laterites are you know, infamous for metallurgical complexity and the cost mm-hmm. and, and technical complexity associated with that. The advantage for us is really two things. One, uh, 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 there's a very low strip ratio here, so there's almost no mine waste. Strip ratio is 0.17 to 1. So almost everything that gets mined here will go to the mill. So mining costs are going to be very low. Processing costs are also going to be very low. And the workhorse of, of the metallurgical recovery for this style of nickel is magnetic separation. So a non-chemical, entirely physical method of removing the nickel from the host rock that is, uh, by definition, a very sort of cheap way to, to take the nickel. So just to explain that again, because these, these are some these are some new technologies and terminologies for people watching this show. Can you talk talk about what precisely that involves and the sorts of recovery rates you'd expect from that? Yeah. So by comparison, there are sulfide deposits out there that may have a nickel grade of 0. 0.2 to 0.3, 0.4%. And oftentimes those sulfide deposits can achieve recoveries of, let's say in the range of 40 to 50%. Uh, so if you're dealing with a head grade in that context of let's say 0.3% and a recovery of, point, of 40%, your, your recovery grade is about 0.12% nickel. Um, in the case of a white, our head grades are about 0.13%. And we can recover about, uh, you know, depending on the grind size, between 90 to 95% of that through our magnetic separation process. So the recovered grade then of this deposit would be similar to that you'd see in a sulfide deposit. And you'd be doing that using a much simpler flow sheet. If you look at the flow sheet, if you study the metallurgical flow sheets for sulfide or laterite deposits, you'll see they're very complicated, many switchbacking, sub-processing routes, et cetera, de-sliming, et cetera, et cetera. Things that are, you know, 
uh, understandable really only to metallurgical specialists. In the case of, of our deposit, it's a very straightforward process that, that intuitively uh, makes sense, again, with, with magnetic separation as the workhorse uh, to, to separate this magnetic mineral, awareweight, from the non-magnetic host rock. Interesting. Okay. And, and so you touched upon something there, which um, I th- well, I, th- I thought interesting anyway. Um, you said that the different sizes of a wear white aren't an issue for you. Is that because of the simplicity of this or, the, or is it because of the magnetic uh, comp- composition of it? I mean, because most, most, most pro- when you're processing, you know, different sizes of ores, it does affect your ability to recover typically, but it, not the case for you? No, it is. It is the case. So a wear away particle size does drive recovery. And okay. so there is a range of a wear away particle size and, and the larger the particles are or the coarser grain they are, the easier they are to recover. Uh, one of the one of the defining characteristics of our project at the car is that the wear away tends to be very coarse grained and or, or very large in, in size. The grains of wear away are large in size, which facilitates the recovery of those grades using those magnetic separators. Okay, interesting, interesting. So you originally, like I say, you've been at, at this a while, you were with Clough previously and you bought it off them, but there, there was some technical work done there and you more recently, you've done some work with Sherritt as well. Can you, was that because, well, why, why go to Sherritt? Yeah, so there's been quite a bit of work. So, you know, the, the kind of the thesis here, if I could just back up for a second with FPX, is that we're taking the work that Cliffs did and their consultants and really improving it um, in, in many different respects, which I can speak to as we go. With respect to metallurgy, those improvements have been twofold. The first has been based on work that we've done with ALS, um, here in British Columbia, one of their laboratories, to show that we can actually achieve higher recoveries um, of nickel to produce a much higher concentrate than what Cliffs had modeled in their previous study. They had modeled the recovery of a 13.5% concentrate. We are modeling the recovery now based on updates to the flow sheet of about a 60 to 65% nickel concentrate, so a much more high-value product. Okay. So, that, that's step one of the metallurgical improvements that we've already demonstrated and, and disclosed to the market. What we then did with Sherritt last year was we took this very high-grade nickel concentrate that was sort of new to us, this fact that we could produce this, this high-grade concentrate. What we wanted to understand was um, can we, can besides being able to take this product to stainless steel producers, can we also take this product into the battery market for production of nickel sulfate? And share it as, as I'm sure you're aware, they're sort of world experts in processing of nickel materials uh, going back many decades now. So we shared that concentrate with them at their laboratory facilities in Alberta. And they showed that our aware weight nickel concentrate, that 60 to 65% concentrate, is ideally suited to producing uh, nickel in a form that would be suitable for uh, uh, the, the EV battery market. So it's given us this new dimension of flexibility on end markets for, for, for our product. Okay, that, no, that, well, that's that's good news. That's, that, those are the sorts of conversations you want to want to be having, and um, if they're positive about it, 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 it bodes well. But um, your problem between now and then is raising capital. So, how much how much cash have you got today? We've got just over two million in cash, um, and our planned expenditure for the rest of this year is is just under a, a million dollars from where we stand today. So, we should end twenty twenty with around a million. Right. So, no 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 field work. Sounds like desk work, engineering, etc. Um, so you're not p- 
pushed on the on the cash front. You, you've got time, well, relative, relatively, you've got time to wait and see if there's a recovery in the market. Yeah, the focus for us um, has is, is has has been and will continue to be the completion of an updated PEA uh, or preliminary economic assessment. So, Cliffs, while they were operating the project, completed a PEA in 2013. And we have worn that study as a millstone uh, for the last seven years. Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Because that study suggested this project needs a nickel price to be nine or ten dollars a pound to be feasible to sort of hit the uh, hurdle rates. What do you think it needs? What do you think you're going to be able to get it to? Uh, Well, that's that's you know uh, that's why you'll have to stay tuned for the for the PEA. What I can say is that it's going to be it will be able to show that it's feasible at a much lower nickel price than that. And the disclosures that we've made on the various improvements that we've, we've achieved with the ore body over the last couple of years provide a breadcrumb trail for people to be able to uh, determine that you know, for their own right. But as you well know, not a lot of people are running discounted cash flow models uh, you know, on, on every company out there. And so doing a PEA and putting that out of the market is, is our way of sort of framing the economics around all those improvements we've achieved over the last um, you know, Let me ask you a different way. What number would you like to get? What number, what number are you aiming for? Well, it's my view that uh, unless your project, unless it, whatever your nickel project is, scale of it, jurisdiction, etc., Unless it shows robust economics uh, in a nickel price range between sort of seven to eight dollars US a pound, you're not in the game. Um, I don't think that there's a feasible case for the nickel price to be above that uh, on a consistent basis over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. I think that is the um, the only sort of reasonable nickel price assumption you could use on a on a, on a long term basis. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, the, the, so you got to get a PEA done, and so when when did you say that was ready to due for? When do, you, when do you expect that to be? Yeah, published? we're targeting late late Q three or, or late Q three or early Q four. So okay, okay. we've kind of evaluated in light of the uh, what's happening with the pandemic right now, but we see no 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 change to that uh, timeline that we previously disclosed. Okay, fine. And I mean, at that point, I mean. You'll go and you're going to need to raise a little bit of cash then to actually start start doing work for a feasibility, a pre-fees presumably. At what point in a in a bull nickel cycle would you think you could actually raise the sorts of monies that you're going to need? Which is we're going to be. I mean, what what sorts of monies do you think you're going to be need for the next phase? Yeah, that's a great question. I I, I think it's important to be realistic about that. So for a project of this scale. Um, uh, you know, there's been about 25 million U.S. invested to take it where it stands today. The question then is, how much is going to be required to take this to the point where there's a, a definitive feasibility study has been completed, as well as obtaining all of the associated permits? And in our view, that is sort of another 40 to 50 million dollars. Um, that's 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 simply what the case history of other large projects of this scale in Canada demonstrate. You need between feasibility demonstration and permitting costs. Right, and, but, and anyway, but if I otherwise. look at your if I look at your history, Martin, you, you you've been very good at doing small raises every now and again, just in terms of reducing dilution, hopefully achieving a, and I think you know it's, I think it's fair to say I mean you're you're hardly stellar, but you're steadily climbing climbing, and there are peaks and troughs each year, um, it, but it's a steady increase in uh, your market cap uh, and share price with with the, 
like I say, with the highs and lows. Look, everyone should look at the, the share price chart for the last five years. But you can't do that. You're not going to do that going forward, are you? you you're going to need to raise a decent chunk of change to get the PFS done. What's that number? Because things are going to change in terms of the way you run the company. Yeah, to do a PFS is probably in the range of $10 million or so. Um, now, if you look at the past cycle, the last cycle when we were involved with Cliffs, when they were involved, when they were pushing this project forward full bore, we reached a peak market cap of 90 million Canadian. And that's when our ownership interest was only 49% of the project. Okay, we now hold 100% of the project and our market cap is around 25 million. So in better nickel market conditions, we do see the ability for the market cap, the share price and the market cap to increase to allow um, to allow for, for raises to, to advance the project. And, uh, you know, if that money is not there, we're, we're in a position where we're not, we don't have, you know, we're, we've taken a, the view that we will do work as the market allows. The market dictates the pace at which these companies should advance. And what the market has been telling nickel development companies and most development companies in any commodity over the last several years is, is uh, by and large, you have to go slow. Now, other some companies out there have pushed ahead, have raised a lot of money, and have diluted uh, their shareholders down for the sake of advancing the project as quickly as possible. Um, it's been our view that, uh, in so in so far as mid-tier major companies are not moving to acquire uh, earlier stage exploration development companies that uh, uh, you know I, the right thing to do is to move forward at a modest pace. And our claims are in good standing until 2030 based on the work that we've done. And so for, uh, you know I would suggest that as a, as a kind of a, um, a call option on the nickel price, what you want to look at look at is the burn rate and the burn rate tells you fundamentally the duration of that call option. And so the lower the burn rate, the higher, the, the, the longer the duration of that call option. That's that's the approach we've taken. Right. Beyond that, though, the, the purpose of putting out a PEA is that this isn't, this isn't just some call option like all the rest. We are not aware of any nickel project anywhere in the world outside of Indonesia that that of this scale that will work and be economic at a lower nickel price than what we anticipate our updated PEA will demonstrate. And so when the major companies start to get active on nickel acquisitions again, which they haven't uh, for about 10 years now, we um, think that our, our project will factor in near the top of the list of their, of their, of their menu, so to speak. Right, okay. I mean, it's a, tough, it's a tough time to be talking about what the markets will and won't do. Obviously, when we're sitting in the middle of this coronavirus um, pan pandemic, one expects, obviously, as with all of these pandemics, normality will resume at some at some point. Um, at that point, people are going to, you know, they may look back at look, start looking at the battery metals, nickel in, included, because I think I think general consensus for the nickel market was that there was a lot of scrap coming into the market at the end of last year because prices got up to a point and that's kind of saturated the market and prices fell again. But they would they would sort of see some sort of gradual increase across the year. And maybe we'll join that curve at some some point this this year. But whenever that moment is, 
people may be looking at you. What do you think they're going to be concerned about? Because you know, if I look, you know, some of the issues which people talk about in the market, obviously low grade. I think you've dealt with that. You can get good, you know, good, good. Well, hopefully, well, you'll talk about the economics further down the line. But you, you feel that you've got a process which works. You're quite remote. Are there large capex uh, costs going to go into your first economic study? Are you going to be talking about those? And um, you know, is that going to affect your ability to produce profitably? Yeah. So, uh, so first, with respect to what will large companies look at? So, you know, probably like most junior companies with assets, we we do engage with uh, with major companies uh, on a regular basis and and take the temperature of where their business development initiatives are at. And uh, we know very, very much where the risks are in this project. And, and the first and foremost risk is, is metallurgical, um, uh, the flow sheet. Now, all of the lab scale work that's been done, the bench scale work that was done by Cliffs and by ourselves and our consultants has been very positive and constructive. But given the novelty of the ore type here or the mineral type, um, doing successive, uh, successively larger scale pilot demonstration over time is going to be fundamental. So if I was a major company coming into this project, that's where I'd spend my first few million dollars is, is on that. And that would give me, in all likelihood, a go or no-go decision on doing further expenditures to move the asset forward. You know, so that, that, that's what we see in terms of risk on the, on the project. And, and I think that it's something that, that can feed nicely from the lab scale work we've already done. With respect to CapEx, uh, as you probably know, Matt, uh, you know, nickel is, is a very capital intensive business by its very nature. It's sort of like uh, the porphyry copper business. These, these tend to be billion, multi-billion dollar projects, and we see no difference with ours. Uh, now with respect to infrastructure, we are actually road accessible. Uh, we're 80 kilometers away from Mount Milligan, which is a very similar scale uh, mining operation to what we have envisioned. And so um, uh, we don't see any, we don't see that we're actually all that remote. We're less than five kilometers from rail, et cetera, and good access to hydropower. So the CapEx will be, will be, will be high by any conventional metric, uh, but that is the fundamental nature of, of, of the nickel business, particularly if you want to be in a position to be producing in excess of 40,000 tons of nickel per annum, which is what we have in the um, so tell me about shareholders. I mean, who holds what? I mean, how much stock do you guys hold, the management? Management is at 18.9%. So, um, um, and the company's been around for over 20 years now. So these are not founders, chief founder shares that have been kicking around. We have been the principal funders of the company in private placements over the last several years, along with a few other key high net worth shareholders. Uh, so there's a group of about five high net worth and family office groups that hold an additional 30% or so of the company beyond what management holds. And, and that is the sort of the core group that's been supporting the company and allowing us to sort of minimize dilution. And importantly, well, again, when we do financings, we, we don't issue any warrants. So there are actually no warrants outstanding on stock. Okay, nice. Okay, quite tidy, quite clean uh, by the looks of it. Right, so then how do you protect your shareholders from getting diluted? Because you're going to need to find a strategic partner with, with, a, with a big balance sheet or access to capital. You're going to want to stay at the party yourselves to, as, as long as you can because you up, go up that value curve. But you're going to need the, to have the ability um, to raise your own, 
you know, participate your own capital for it to uh, continue to participate, presumably. Or have you got a different business plan? You know, is is there a model where you're as soon as you get your strategic in, you you try and get carried for some of it, and then you sit back and wait and see what happens, which which can work. Yeah. So there, I mean, there's two approaches I think to how to advance a project like this. One is to get sort of large institutional shareholders, private equity, or others to come in at the equity level and to suffer dilution at the equity level. Um, um, but ultimately, you'd still be looking for a major company sort of exit partner on it. The other model is is getting an asset level or potentially an asset and or equity level major company partner. Uh, and we've seen that in recent times with uh, particularly attractive uh, assets where major companies have come in at either the asset level or sometimes they've been constrained only to the equity level. Um, our view right now is in discussions with uh, larger potential partners that we're, we're interested in looking at equity investment right now. Um, but we're certainly not closed entirely to the idea of an asset level investment. Now, an asset level investment, if that were to, to proceed, would, would obviously involve some type of free carry to, to some long dated event, uh, likely sort of a, a decision to, to construct. And depending on the counterparty, that can oftentimes come with a guarantee on project finance as well. That would basically absolve our shareholders of, of a requirement to have to uh, raise participatory capital at that time. But you must so be you must be leaning one way. You must be leaning towards one of those options more than the other, given the resources that you've got in house. You don't have anyone anyone in house who's gone and built out a mine or indeed delivered. You know, got into production with a nickel previously. Do you? Not in the nickel space, but large. We do have mine builders who've built and operated mines, large scale copper and gold mines in in this operating environment in 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 Canada and in British Columbia specifically. So we we do have that kind of large scale, large project building and operational experience uh, within within the board and within our advisory group. Um, so, but that that to me is less the issue than kind of how you structure something. And listen, as you've noted, we're a twenty-five million dollar company, and we're under no illusions that we're going to be the company that ultimately constructs and operates a mine here. What is the best strategy for us to uh, maximize share price for our share our, our patient shareholders until that exit point? That is to maintain one hundred percent control of the asset for as long as possible to when the majors are ready to start, you know, investing in earlier stage projects to um, encourage as much competitive tension as possible to drive out the best deal as we can. But the deal we had with Cliffs um, was, was actually a fairly good one for our shareholders. So we, you know, before the project had ever had any drill holes put into it, the deal with Cliffs would saw that they would spend all the money required to deliver a feasibility study and that we would then form a 75%, 25% joint venture with, with, with First Point or FPX sitting with 25% interest. Now that the project has already had $25 million invested in it to date, that it's been significantly de-risked versus that Greenfield's opportunity that Cliff saw many years ago, we think we can drive to an ultimate you know, ownership interest for our shareholders well in excess of 25%. And, and for a project of this scale, that would be meaningful indeed. Okay, that's what that's what I wanted to get to. I want I wanted to understand. So, you know, should shareholders continue to hold? Should people be looking at you because you've got a clear route to where you want to bug out, as it were? 
um, because you've got to be realistic, as you say, and I think I think you have been. You know, your market cap is what it is. You've, you've got the resources in house that you have or haven't haven't got. Um, although I appreciate you can call down on advice from elsewhere on the board. Um, and you've obviously learnt lessons with Cliff. That was, you know, unfortunate. But you know, they're, they're, you know, the balance sheet of your partners are a big, a big, big part of this. The strength of it and robustness of it, and ability to get capital. Okay, in, interesting, Martin. Um, look, I appreciate your time today. Uh, I thought that was a really useful first introduction to what looks like quite a different nickel story. I think people are quite excited about nickel. Well, certainly were before uh, the uh, coronavirus came along, and I, th- I think there will be again when it when it goes away. Um, and this is unusual. I've not heard a not had a heard a, a, a wear a white uh, story previously. Um, so thank you again. Um, if you could stay in touch, let us know how you're getting on as, as things progress. I expect from what you're saying, you expect to be he- head down um, at the computer doing your engineering studies and get working towards that PEA. So good luck with that. Thanks, Matt. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.